Well, good morning, everyone. I'm not sure if you noticed, we have, we have a guest of honor this morning. We, uh, former lead pastor Paul Stone hanging out with us this morning, officiating a wedding this side of town, so we had him over here. If you have not met Paul Stone, you're missing out. You should meet him. And now, at this point in Living Ways history, we have got 100% turnout of getting a former lead pastor to come to church afterwards, so that's pretty good. We can't be that offensive, right? Perfect. Uh, anybody enjoy watching kids play games and watch when they get weird? I know I do. And I have a very creative daughter. I was watching uh, her, and, her and Camille disappear, and it was quiet for a bit, which is normally very alarming. Um, that is when your homeowner's insurance usually comes into play. And so they disappear, they come back, and they're dressed up uh, in these ridiculous outfits, and they're going to play superheroes. And so Victoria's got herself dressed up. She dressed up Camille. Camille's 18 months. She has no idea what's going on. But she likes wearing the pretty cape and running in circles, so she's all happy to be there. Now, Victoria, she's got these bunny ears on and bunny shoes on, and she says that she's Ayala, the sister of Sonic the Hedgehog, who has all the powers of Sonic the Hedgehog, but also super jump. And then she introduced uh, Camille, who's got a cape on. She was Toe-Biter Justice. Uh, And I'll tell you, Camille's nickname was not given in a vacuum. That week, she had this thing where she kept biting toes, so... I'd be sitting in the recliner with my feet up and working on my computer or something, and suddenly, ah! And I look at all four teeth right into my big toe. And so Toe Biter Justice was her name. And I guess the warning is to all of the criminals out there wearing open-toed sandals, <laughs> your days are numbered. Toe Biter Justice is upon you. But the nicknames I thought was interesting, and nicknames is something that uh, a lot of, if you have a nickname, I'm not, even if it's shameful, I'm not going to make you say it. So don't be like, oh, I'm not saying I got one. He's going to ask me what it was. If you have a nickname, just pop your hand up. A nickname going around, like uh, quite a few of us do. They're given to us by other people and they're given to us because, uh, well, we are a toe biter or whatever it is it's going to be. We, nicknames are given because of a person's particular attributes, qualities, things that they've done. For instance, uh, the legendary trailblazer Clyde Drexler. He was very athletic, very fast, but he had a certain grace about his movements. You'd watch him move, and it was almost like dance. He was very graceful, and so people called him Clyde the Glide because he glided around the floor. And so we have these nicknames. We have these things given to us, and uh, what we've been looking at is we've been looking at Isaiah 9, particularly verse 6, the four royal additional names given to the child that is born unto us. These four qualities that sum him up. And royal names, they're given in the same thing to reflect a certain quality, certain things about the royal individual. And what makes these royal nicknames unique in particular that we're, we've been studying is that they're prophetically given to a child who isn't even born yet. Unto us a child is born, and he will be these four things. And these are the four things that he will do for his people. Now, it's not to say that this one verse actually perfectly encapsulates all that Jesus does. An entire book is dedicated to his lifetime, the book of John. And John ends that book saying, if one were to endeavor to write down everything that Jesus had ever done and all the great works that he's done, it would exhaust the earth's ability to store all the paper." that he has done more, that he has been the creator, he's been at the center, he's done so much that you could not encapsulate him easily. But these four names are unique because 
They are the four royal names that really would have meant something to people living in a time of darkness and waiting for light to dawn. So I want to read our passage today. We're going to just read verse 2, then we're going to jump ahead to verse 6. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government will rest on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. I've been looking at these royal names, those four. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, and today, Everlasting Father. Now, don't let that throw you for a minute, because we're talking about Jesus being called a father, and that can be confusing. You see, the New Testament uses this overarching teaching for us to understand something about the nature of God and his triune nature, that there are three portions to him, three parts. And it's the main operating understanding that the New Testament is written in. And one could almost say it's a great analogy to to describe God, but that probably is going a little too far. It might be more accurate to say we don't have the vocabulary, we don't have the, the reasoning ability to understand everything about God and what he's like. And so it is a great way of understanding and opening this door even just a little bit. Because the picture is deeply and powerfully true. There is a portion of God that is authority, and it is will, and it is leadership, and that portion of God has sent out another portion. The second portion, it is one that came, it is, it is immediately present with us. It is the creator. And it, he, the second portion creates, it heals, it restores. The first one we call the father. The second portion we call the son. And when the father and son completed their work, the third and final portion was sent out into the world. A presence of God that is everywhere, a spirit that fills the world. He convicts the world of unrighteousness to lead them back to God. And for those that listen, he coaches and leads and guides them. And he empowers his people to do the will of God. And we call that portion the spirit. And this method of teaching is, is, is beautiful and perfect and describes a very deep and difficult being to describe. That in him is three in one. But the Old Testament, it doesn't operate under the Father, Son, Spirit, nomenclature all the time. In fact, there's only times that it seems to allude to God's triune nature, and it doesn't necessarily speak of it outright. Even alluding it to the, one of the first times that God has dialogue When speaking to himself, he speaks in the plural. Let us make man in our own image. So we can see it's a a solid and true thing that God is three in one. But the Old Testament isn't going to divide in the same father, son, spirit way that we're familiar with. So all that to say this. Our Old Testament people reading Isaiah, this Old Testament book, they would not have been thrown or confused by the Messiah being called Father. Because he is a father. He is a father to his people. And the Messiah will be a father to his people. 
One theologian had said uh, that if you understand the scripture's images of fathership in the Bible, you would understand the main thrust of the Bible's entire purpose. We have to ask ourselves, when they say the Messiah will be everlasting father, what do they see? What do they mean? And what does that image mean to them? They see God as a father. God is the father of all creation over all humanity. He creates, he leads, he passes on a heritage, a lineage to them, and he guides them into that fruition. Fathers in scriptures are seen as, as a few ways, in the, especially, particularly the Old Testament. They're seen as, as creators. Obviously, there's a mother involved here. But the father is this one from which lineage is tracked and things are passed. We see this happen with, uh, with uh, Solomon. We see that he uh, inherits the throne from his father, David. And so the father is part of his genetics, but also passes on something to Solomon, a throne that he will sit on. Jacob, when he's dying, he blesses his 12 sons and, and God's spirit moves through him as he steps into a high role of a father as he blesses and distributes and speaks something over each one of his boys. Fathers create and they pass on. And so God also creates and he passes on. Fathers are protectors. You see, you have to think of this in a clan setting. We live in a world with a vast government where we're protected by police and military and all sorts of things. But if you lived in a clan setting, the father of that was its protector. And they functioned like judges and kings, settling disputes and making peace. We see, um, we see Jacob fail in this role as a father when he shows unguarded favoritism over Joseph and creates strife in his own home until uh, sin is committed and issues are made. Their job is to protect their family, to see between things and to guide it. They protect it from outside disasters. They're meant to lovingly care and protect in a way that is, it's not just a, an oath, but it's something to where you're dedicated to them because they're your child and you protect them. And they're meant to be teachers they lead their families in learning wisdom and truth, especially about God. And we can see an Old Testament picture of this is the high priest Eli fails completely in teaching his sons things about character and fails to teach them and instruct them about reverence to God. And they are very, very wicked boys. As bad as your boys are, they're not as bad as Eli's boys. The teacher of Israel can't even teach his own household is the point. And it comes to ruin. Fathers are called on again and again. Teach your children. What do these signs mean? What do these symbols mean? They correct and they train up. Not as a tyrant. Not as someone who, who drives their kids to, to reflect well on them. But it's, it's, just, it's meant to be like God. They're called to be lovingly guiding. Not because they're teaching students, but because they're teaching their kids that they love kind of like a holy sanctioned nepotism, a little bit of favoritism because you love them and you protect them. And the role of father, it's always intended to be one thing, a sign that points to the eternal father, the God that created the universe, who leads us, protects us, settles our disputes between us, gives us law and order. 
but it doesn't always work out that way because fathers fall short all the time in Scripture. Abraham fails to protect his son Ishmael, allows him to be put out, and God has to intervene and save him and bring him back. Abraham also fails to lead his family in righteousness, making several mistakes that affect real people's lives and make things difficult for everyone. Jacob fails to hold his boys accountable when they commit an absolute massacre. A sister of theirs was violated by a man in a, in a town. They convinced the whole town to be circumcised. On the day of most pain, they came in and killed everybody. And Jacob fails to hold them accountable. And violence continues to be part of their lives. Saul, the king, he abuses both his daughter and his son with a tyrannical abuse and rage, attempting once to even murder his own son. And David fails to confront rape and incest in his own home. It seems that being a parent in the Bible is to be one that desperately needs forgiveness. And it's really not all that different from today. Parents just screw up. They do. We do. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. We hear that, but when you have kids, it sounds different. Be perfect as your heavenly parent is perfect. It's intimidating. There are times and there are days that I feel like all I do as a parent is apologize all the time. And I wonder like, is there gonna come a point that, that they're gonna hear it and they're gonna think that just sounds contrite. That's always what dad says because my apologies sound often familiar. It sounds something like this. I'm sorry I lost my temper. It's not okay for dads to do that. And it's wrong the way that I acted. I'm gonna work on that and I want you to know it wasn't even your fault. I'm mad about other things and I shouldn't have talked to you like that. And it can be painful and embarrassing when you say it multiple times a day, multiple times in a week. It's difficult. In the end, I, I know this. I know perfect parenting isn't gonna come for me. I'm not gonna achieve that. I'm not gonna get it right all the time. And so all I can hope is that I can earn enough of their respect today that they'll follow the good things I'm trying to teach them and maybe one day earn their forgiveness because I know I'm gonna need it. And fathers, we aren't and, and they aren't perfect. And yet there's this interesting thing that it would yet not ever given a perfect example of what this looks like. Israel keeps dreaming of the perfect father. When our examples are failures, both the example that we received and the, and the one that we feel we see from ourselves every day, they'd still dream of the perfect father to guide them. And you know what? You do too. We want someone who is gonna guide us, who is gonna guard us, who would take agency to protect and to go out in front of us, who would protect us in our families, that would work with us to settle disputes, come between us and problems, that we could have something achieved in our lives we cannot do for ourselves, a father that would bring harmony, one that would bring us success. And the stars the limits if a good father is among you. One of the great things that this these people living in darkness will say one day of the Messiah is that he was their eternal father. 
and everlasting Father. When the Messiah takes the reins, he will settle disputes. He'll guide them and protect them like a perfect father would guide and protect into absolute truth and to do so compassionately. From the Messiah, they're going to inherit an incredible blessing. And he will make things that have been unstable entirely stable. Did you know that stability was the thing that prompted Israel to ask for their first king? You can go and you can read it in 1 Samuel. They were tired of the age of the judges where one person would rise up by God, lead the nation in repentance, and then everybody would screw up again. So what they wanted, they wanted monarchy. They wanted to have one family that would produce from one generation to the next a a series of contiguous leaders that they wouldn't go up and down, free and, and over their own land until they sin and another nation comes in and dominate them. They wanted a monarchy because what they wanted was stability. And this great promise is, is that though their first king was imperfect, that God gave him the king they wanted. Eventually, he won't just give him the king they wanted. He'll give him the king that they need. The eternal king, that one day a king will be born unto us. And among all the things about him is that he will be stable like a father. And he'll love his people like a father. And not like the father that we behave ourselves as or the ones that we were raised by, but the one that's perfect that for some reason, and you don't know why, you dream of it in your heart without being inspired by anything else. It's so inherent to want that perfect leader. We cannot forget that through Advent, through his ministry, through his sacrifice, through his resurrection, Christ has started something that's everlasting. And an eternal king is on the throne. Yeah, tomorrow seems unknown and and we don't know what it is and it can be an hour of darkness. But started 2,000 years ago, beginning, establishing today is something that is eternal. Things have been put into motion and are still being put into motion all the time now that endure through all of eternity. That right now, eternal stability is breaking upon this unstable world. Things are getting put into motion that will never change. The reign of the eternal and stable king has begun. We live in this hour of darkness. And yet on this darkness, a light has dawned. And hope is on us. Someone so good that we would say of him, he has been our everlasting father. The light of Christ is not going to grow dimmer with time. It grows brighter over time, deeper over time as the foundations are laid. You could say a lot of things about the Messiah. You could say that Christ is our guardian, but that doesn't describe it. We could say Christ is our guide, but that just doesn't do it justice. We could say he's our teacher, but that's so limited. We could say he's stable, but that's shallow. The Messiah is a father to us, who is stable, dedicated, stuck on us because he's related to us, dedicated to us, with us everywhere we go. And he's unending. 
Isn't that remarkable? And when we raise our kids, we raise them for the day that they leave and we won't be with them. God's parenting is a little unique because he raises us and yet he doesn't leave. He is eternal, everlasting, and with us. Not apart from us, doesn't leave us. And I think in this season, in this time, in this Christmas season, our hope and our joy comes from the fact that the forever has already begun. If you're craving stability, it's already begun. Its foundations are being laid. The kingdom of God is being erected on top. And the Lord is beginning great things. And if you draw near, the thing that comes out of us, the thing that we say about him, is that he's been like an everlasting father to us. I want to pray for us for a few things. You can bow your heads, close your eyes. I want to pray for those that you feel like Christ is giving up on you. And I think you feel that because you are giving up on you. And it's important for you to know something today. He's no remote teacher. He's no distant leader. He's like a father to you. There is some nepotism that works in your favor on this one. There is favor on you. And he is not giving up on you. Lord, this morning I pray for those that have felt like you are giving up on them. Lord, let them see that as they that give up on themselves, that you are still faithful, that you are with them, that you couldn't leave. If even a moderately good father remains faithful to children that are unfaithful, couldn't we suspect that one who is perfect and a father to his people would still be faithful? That our Messiah is the one that leaves the 99 to pursue the one who chases us down when we go headlong into problems. Lord, I pray this morning that we would look up from the mess that we've created and we'd realize that you haven't given up on us yet. I think there's people in here that are worried about tomorrow and what could happen, what may be. And there's a reminder for you today that the peace of the eternal kingdom has already been laid and hope is being built on it. That as unknown as tomorrow is, Christ has established something eternal. It's already begun. The ground might shake, but a step away is a foundation that is unshaken. Lord, I pray for those that feel like the ground is shaking and that tomorrow it could drop out from underneath them. Lord, I pray that you would give them the faith to put their feet someplace else. That their hope their desire, the, the, just the thrust of their life would come down to you and being part of your kingdom with its growing and expanding stability. That in this dying world, something undying has already begun and it will be complete and it will be full. We stand on your eternal nature, Lord. final group of people I want to pray for are those that you feel you feel lost and something deep inside of you wants some fatherly guidance that fatherly guidance that is 
It's wise, but it's also really loving, deeply compassionate. And we know that that, that voice won't soothe, say, but it'll tell us what we need to understand and to lead us out. And it will advocate for us, go before us and make things happen. God, I pray for those that are lost. They don't know what to do and they don't know the right decision to make in front of them. And all the world seems a mess and and a muck and mixed up and, and jumbled. Lord, I pray that they would receive that fatherly guidance. You don't abandon them to untie these knots themselves, but you come and you give wisdom to start here, go there, do this. Lord, I pray for fatherly wisdom that comes from God to rest on their life right now. That it would begin the way that a good father would, coming and putting his arm around us first to give us comfort, to settle us down. And when the emotions are taken care of, when they are met, then he gives wisdom. When the time is right, then he gives the command. Jesus, I pray that we could draw so close to you and so near to you that this prophecy would be fulfilled on our own mouths, that we would say in the end, Jesus was an everlasting father to me. That when I needed guidance and guarding, protecting, when I needed someone to come between me and the problem, when I needed the problem solved, I always had someone to go up to. And that thing so deep in me that wanted that perfect father was satisfied in Christ and in the father that he leads me to. Lord, I pray that that would be fulfilled in us, that as we draw closer to you, it would be so close that we would say, Jesus has been an everlasting father to me. Bless us in this season, God. I pray that you would bless every household that this would be the best Christmas yet, the one filled with Christ more than any other. Pour your life into our homes in Jesus' name. 